Okay, let's kick this kick the show off. Let's do that. Welcome to Fatal Error. I'm Chris. And I am Sarush. Today we thought that uh, we'd take a little bit of break from the really intense um, concurrency episodes that we've been doing. There will be another one next week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there will be. Oh, yeah, there will be. <laughs> yep. We recorded them out of order, uh, you know, kind of a concurrency theme. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hit the bell very lightly here. Very nice. Uh, t- so tonight we thought we would do a grab bag episode. So each of us has some moderately interesting stuff going on, and uh, we haven't we we haven't had a chance recently, Sarush and I, to just like catch up about some of the more like minor stuff going on in each other's programming lives. Um, yeah, things that maybe don't deserve a whole episode, but things that are interesting nonetheless and uh, that we want to talk about. Right. Before we get kicked off, you may notice that my dulcet tones are coming in a little bit smoother than normal. Um, that is thanks to you, the Patreon listeners. Um, I got an ATR2500, uh, which is a, seems like a pretty good mic and it wasn't too expensive, which was nice. Um, and I've kind of put the Rode Podcaster to bed. I, um, I, I don't actually have a purpose for it. So if somebody wants to start a podcast, uh, this road podcaster was gifted to me and I would be happy to gift it to someone else if they wanted to, um, sort of start a show, but they didn't want to spend any money on a microphone. Um, I would be happy to send it, uh, send it someone's way. So if you are a Patreon listener and you want the microphone, definitely hit me up and I would be happy to send it to you. Um, I'm pretty happy with this new mic. I still need a shock mount and, um, a pop filter for it. So my peas may be coming a little hot. But uh, I really want to thank everybody because um, it wouldn't have been possible for us to get gear like this, gear that really works for us, uh, without the Patreon. So we really, really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, new microphone, I got the same model as Sarush, is still in the mail. So my voice is coming in just the same as it ever has. Uh, but I, I want to reiterate uh, thanks to all of your Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. Yeah, so I think, so episode 45 is already recorded, um, but then episode 46, I think, will be the first one where we both have our cool new mics. Yeah. Woo. It's going to be great. It'll be exciting. So yes, thank you. Thank you to all of y'all. Yeah. On to more technical topics. Let's do it. So I think the first thing that we were going to discuss, unless you object, Sarush, is that I have been working on a skill for the Amazon Lady in a Tube device. Mm-hmm. The, the the lady who shall not be mentioned for fear of of triggering, right? And we'll the aforementioned, we'll, we'll bleep <laughs> things out um, as necessary throughout the show. Uh, I actually just started working on this yesterday, so quote unquote have been working on it is maybe a, is, is a little <laughs> bit of a strong statement. Um, I fell asleep on the couch at about one this morning, work because yeah. I started working on it after work and um, then fell asleep. So, it's always nice to have a project where you like it so much that you work on it late into the evening. Yeah, it is. And this is, I've honestly been kind of struggling to find something that's like that. And so I'm really happy that I found something that I'm really excited about and I'm just rolling with it. Yeah, I'm really, really happy to hear. So, so where are you? What is it? Can you share what it does? Yeah. So the idea, um, so earlier this week, I finally fixed up my home um, airplane tracking radio setup. Uh, this is a nice, this is a little uh, Raspberry Pi that has a little software-defined radio dongle that's hooked up to an antenna, and it receives transmissions from airplanes that are flying around near me 
and plots those all on a map and also reports them up to sites like FlightAware and a site called ADSB Exchange. Uh, and this is a really neat thing. Uh, we'll put maybe a screenshot in the show notes of what the front end of the software looks like. Uh, it's... It's really, really, really cool. I have a like little thing on my network that has a map of all the airplanes flying around, and it's all data that I uh, that I'm capturing, which is awesome. So I thought it w- what would be even cooler would be what if I hear an airplane. Uh, and like something flies over and I want to know what it is right now. I have to like pull out my phone or, or like run to a computer, um, and look at what is flying overhead. And that's just such a pain. Uh, there are several of, uh, these echo dots spread around my apartment. And so I thought I really should be able to just ask what is flying overhead. So I'm working on a skill that does just that. And I have big plans for this. The idea is you'll be able to say what airplanes are nearby, what's the nearest airplane, what just flew overhead, which like has a subtly different query than what is the closest airplane to me, since like the airplane that just made noise overhead might not be the nearest airplane to you like 30 seconds later, right? Right, right, right. Um, I also envision you being able to ask, like, what helicopters are nearby if you, like, hear a helicopter and are specifically curious about that. Right. Um, so, so this is really going to be a finely tuned application for me uh, wanting to know what is flying over my house, right? Those, those are the best applications. So I have it working now uh, to the point where you can ask exactly one thing and it just tells you what the nearest airplane to you is. And we can go, and it gives you a little bit, the, the output isn't formatted quite in the way that I want, but we can just try it here. Uh, we'll, we'll bleep all this out. Ask aircraft radar what just flew overhead. The nearest aircraft is 2007 Airbus A319-132 at 8,500 feet, heading 298.1. Boom, just like that. Nice. So, I think now, eventually... How, sorry, quick interruption. Um, how is your, your operational security on these matters? Like, did it give a tail code where somebody could track down when and where we recorded this episode? Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, there was... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think my, my OPSEC is intact here. Um, you gotta keep that shit locked down, you know? That's right. I think that was just the airplane's model, its altitude, and its heading, and that's not really enough to, uh, to right. track me down. For sure. Also, I'm fairly easy to track down. Uh, <laughs> Hi, he lives in Ann Arbor. <laughs> <laughs> just look, hang out in downtown Ann Arbor for, like, two days. You're guaranteed to run into me. There you go. I've heard it's a small town. Yeah, tomorrow tomorrow's Friday. Uh, I'll probably eat lunch uh, at Old Town uh, as usual. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so eventually I would like it to say that was a, you know, Delta 737 from uh that is up at this altitude and is flying in this direction and it's going from here to here and like with whatever data I have, I want to just piece together a coherent message that puts the most important things uh, toward the beginning. But I mean, I just got this working like a couple hours ago today. So yeah, still, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So now I'm, so there've been a couple, uh, do you want to like dive into the sort of technical underpinnings of this for a few minutes? Yes. I'm specifically curious about like, where does it run? How does the code work? Like, what do you provide where they provide? Yeah, so I was actually pleasantly surprised by how easy this was. There are a couple tutorials online. We'll throw some links to those in the show notes. Cool. And it's it's really pretty surprisingly straightforward. The first thing is you go to some Amazon developer page and put together a like voice interaction model, which basically consists of defining an intent. So that intent could be like, 
show me nearby or tell me nearby airplanes. And then you put in a bunch of example things that the users might say to get to that intent. So like what airplanes are nearby, what airplanes are flying nearby, what aircraft are nearby, like just a bunch of like different different things that the user might ask for. And I don't think that that the echo just listens for or like only interprets those exact questions. I think there's some uh, machine learning magic that happens. But at the end of the day, uh, you have this like voice model that is running somewhere in the Amazon world. Uh, and then when it gets triggered, so someone will say like, hey, Dingus, ask my ask this application um, this question. Uh, it identifies that application and sends you uh, and and tells you what intent the user has activated. And this runs on something called AWS Lambda. And I'm not totally, uh, I forget exactly what AWS Lambda is even, but it seems like a way to run like a, to run like a node application. I think it supports Python and maybe something else too. Uh, but you can like run a node application as basically in response to some external trigger, such as someone asking your echo for a thing. So it's not like an always on server. It's like you define some function and it gets, and it gets triggered. And that function may do things like go out to a web service and grab information about nearby aircraft, for example. Um, and so that's where the, the, like the interesting part of this code or the code that you're writing is running is within. AWS, it's a function. And I mean, I say function, it really is like a full fledged, uh, like Node.js project. Uh, you can have dependencies, it can be many megabytes of stuff, uh, but it gets like spun up and run in response to some external trigger. And so, uh, how do you deploy to the AWS Lambda? So there are a few different, uh, when you're first starting out, you can literally copy and paste a JavaScript file into the web interface. That's wild. Uh, it's really easy to get started. You can also like edit in that interface. Right. Once you're at a point where you want to use other dependencies, you uh, basically upload a zip file to AWS Lambda and it deploys from that zip file. That okay. zip file consists just of like your JavaScript file or files and your node modules folder, right? Because AWS Lambda isn't going to download node modules for you. They have to be all packed up in the zip file. Gotcha. So that, that zip file might be tens of thousands of, of gigabytes, potentially, um, with, with all your node modules in there. That's uh, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to get those settled. Uh, I think, I mean, I have a very small project so far, and I think my node modules file folder is up at like seven megabytes right now so you're joking i'm not i'm not (laughs) wow wow i I mean it's well it's all code there's like it's not like there's any images in there it's not like there's any video there's no data that's crazy yeah yeah all good so great ecosystem it's possible to i mean (laughs) i mean on the other on the other hand like i've gotten um, I, I don't really write much JavaScript and certainly much Node, but I've gotten this working so far pretty quickly, so that's cool. Nice. Uh, you, there's a way to there's a way to automate that deployment too. Like right now, I'm working on making it so that I can trigger my Lambda thing locally, so I don't have to upload it to Lambda to actually test. And there's also some way to deploy it from the command line, which I'll get set up at some point. It sounds like it's a Heroku kind of system. And I bet there's actually probably a way to do like a git push to it, and then it'll just 
deploy whatever's in the folder. Maybe. I'm not totally sure. Like, yeah. Heroku is things that are running constantly and, like, receiving requests, though, right? Right, yes. It is different in that way that it, it spins the... Well, actually, Heroku spins the servers down when they're not taking any requests for certain tiers. Yeah, but this isn't, like... This is something that I don't think is ever running persistently. Right, right, right. Okay. So that's... I don't know. That's that's my experience so far. I'm lucky in that the API that I'm grabbing this data from is really straightforward. It's from the ADSB exchange um, site, which which I mentioned earlier and which we'll put in the show notes. Um, I uh, don't feel bad using their API for this because I uh, both donate to them to keep the project running and I'm feeding them like live flight data from my little receiver setup here. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. It's a nice little community community run service or community supported service, I guess, not community run. So that's uh, that's that. Maybe by the time this episode airs, I'll have more features built in, and uh, hopefully, I you know I'd like to go public with this at some point. There are one or two other skills that do a similar thing, but uh, they're not very good. And unless I'm missing something uh, big, mine will be much better. Nice, cool. So um, I'm 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 still interested in like how you kind of handle the the node code and how you deploy and stuff. Uh, can you write it? and host it anywhere besides AWS Lambda? I'm not totally sure. I think it... I I don't know. Interesting, okay. <laughs> That's a good question. I started reading tutorials about this yesterday, so... Right, right, right. Um, yeah, this is like that Swift on the Server episode we did, where uh, I had been doing it for like two days, and you were like, how does this work? And I was like, well, you know, uh, here's my best guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can tell you for what I've done so far is really... St- it's really straightforward. Like I have a a folder on my computer that has my script in it and has like, I I can use NPM to install node modules and then I zip it all up and upload it to Lambda. And then I talk to my echo and it runs it and it's pretty cool. So for, for inputs and outputs, um, you, so you said you kind of list out a couple of different ways the user could phrase the thing. Now, is it an exact match on any of those things? Or is it um, kind of a fuzzy, like, oh, what's the edit distance between these two? It's close enough, like, give it to them. Yeah, kind of I'm pretty sure that it's not an exact match on those things, because I feel like I've given it some phrases that I are things that I didn't explicitly include in that list, and it's worked. Gotcha. So I think that there's some fuzzy magic, uh, a probably machine learning magic that happens in between you sending a list of phrases and then like a user saying something to the echo. Right. And can you, can you have parameters as well? Can you say like what flew overhead two hours ago? Hmm. That's interesting. I, I'm not sure. Right. Okay. And then can you ask for more information is another question I have. So if they say, Hey, what flew overhead? Um, you could say, well, there's, and the thing could respond, there's helicopters and planes, which would you like? And you would say helicopters or planes. Yeah, so it's definitely possible to do that. Like when your Lambda function uh, calls back to the uh, device in a tube API, <laughs> uh, it can tell it, it can tell at like it can tell the Echo whether this interaction is done or whether it should keep like keep listening for an answer and then call you back. Gotcha. Cool. 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 Um, and then the thing that you get that you respond with is just a string, and they just read it. 
Yeah. So you, yeah. So you just give it a string and there's some markup that you can include in that string to hint, for example, whether a number should be read as like 1,234 or one, two, three, four, or 1,234th. As like uh, it's in a like list. As an ordinal or whatever. Exactly, yeah. So um, you can provide various hints on how it should say things that way. Same with like letters. It'll try to pronounce things, but if you want it to just spell out letters, you can hint that it should just like read raw letters to the user as well. Gotcha. And then I'm also curious, like between different uh homophones, sorry, whatever the one is where they're spelled the same but pronounced different, like read and read or lead and Oh, uh, that's Led. a good question. Is I that I assume their like speech algorithm kind of knows how to deal with that, but I would assume, but I have not run into that yet, so I don't know for sure. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I assume it knows because like Siri knows how to like read a sentence. Yeah, in a text. Yeah, this does seem like something that is more that they can solved. kind of figure out. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Nice. Yeah. Pretty good. And I feel like you could also fudge it a little bit. Like we, um, like one idea is, you know, if you put in, uh, if the output you get from the API is like the number 737 for like the plane 737, you could kind of replace that with the words seven and then 37. And then yeah. it would kind of read that. And so you'd be kind of tricking it. Yeah, definitely. And I may end up doing some things like that. Uh, yeah. we'll, yeah, we'll see. That'd be cool. That'd be really yeah, cool. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, we'll keep our, our listeners updated as to when they can install this on their uh, Echoes. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever finish it enough to, to ship it. I feel like it's shippable right now. Like It's not great, but uh, my impetus is just to tell everybody to ship their thing as soon as it's even barely usable and then iterate on it in public. <laughs> so I think there's some sort of approval process for the Amazon like skills. So even better, I, you should find out how what what's the smallest minimum viable application that they'll take. That's that's definitely true. Uh, I do have to figure out one big piece that I haven't done yet is getting the address from the Echo, um, the like the address that's assigned to the Echo, and geocoding it for my search. Right oh, now, is it hard coded for your address right now? I, yeah, I started this yesterday evening. Nice. <laughs> it's hard coded for my home. Yeah, so the the skill could be called "What's flying over Chris's house right now." <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that's that's a big thing that I need to do. I assume that it's easy to like get an address from the Echo and geocode it because I assume that everyone does that. So um, nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's that. In the interest of uh, sort of moving on to our other grab bag topics, do you, you had something about sorcery that you wanted to uh, talk about, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, this one's a pretty short one, I think. Um, but I basically uh, finally got some time to write a blog post that I've been meaning to write. Uh, and when I look back at the Git Blame, I meant to write it back in February. So I am pretty far behind on this. But <laughs> um, man. Yeah, but it's finally out. It's called Sorcery in Practice. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, Sorcery, uh, we talked about before uh, on the show, is a code gen tool for Swift. Um, it'll basically let you kind of examine your Swift type system and using SourceKit and generate code based on that. Um, so what this, like a lot of what I've seen with sorcery in the examples and in a lot of blog posts and stuff is just really simple stuff. So auto equatable loop through all the properties and return false. If one of them is not equal. Um, another one would be like, uh, you know, list all the cases in this enum. 
And those are really useful, and I use those in lots of places, but I want to do a lot more. Um, and so this blog post is basically all about how to generate a implementation for um, an NS coding wrapper for a struct. Uh, and so as you can imagine, that's not trivial because um, let's say you have a struct that struct will then have a child struct that also you want to be encodable. So when you go through and make this thing, like when you prepare this thing for encoding, you not only have to wrap the original parent object, but you also have to wrap the child object uh, before mm-hmm. you encode it, because otherwise it won't be um, it won't be an object that conforms to NS coding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is so not a trivial thing to, to accomplish. It's not, and I think that's part of the reason that um, you know, it makes it such a good example for sorcery is because it's like, well, we've done such simple things with sorcery to date, and we kind of leave out um, anything more complicated than that. Um, but sorcery is pretty powerful, and so you could, you can, and I did build this um, template that will create all of these implementations for uh, a wrapper for each struct that conforms to NS coding. Um, you can read the implementation details on the blog post. I don't want to. I don't want to go too much into that here. Um, but the big, really interesting thing that happened was when I was looking at it, I was like, you know, when we wrote this, I had this slight fear that this was not a very um, robust pattern. I was worried we'd have to constantly be making little edits to it, and there's like it wouldn't kind of stand up to test. To, mm. And I was worried it kind of wouldn't stand the test of time. Yeah. And that turned out to be completely not the case. We wrote it in one day really? back in February. And the, according to GitBlame, we have not touched the files since that day in February. Huh. That's and we've awesome. made tons of model changes. And then the sort of this code reacts to those model changes. Um, but it never sort of needed to be updated to handle. So the template kind of worked flawlessly. And so the code was a little bit ugly. And I managed to actually clean it up a little bit. Um, I was missing else if. And so you can imagine I had a lot of nested um, <laughs> if else uh, sort of sort of tags and commands, sure. which was really frustrating. Um, and I got a chance to sit with um, Kyle Fuller when I was back in Japan. Uh, and I was like, hey, I don't know why, but Stencil, which is the, the tool that Sorcery uses to make the templates, um, Stencil doesn't support else if tags, and it kind of seems like a gimme. Why doesn't it do that? And he goes, oh, it's just total oversight. My bad. And he coded up, and they had a pull request the next day. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah, and that trickled its way down into Sorcery, because Sorcery uses it as dependency, so they both have to be updated. Uh, but now, six months later, that has all finally landed. Like, it didn't take six months to land, but it was six months before I remembered to check. Uh, and now that it's all landed, um, I went in and rewrote the code to use LSIF, and it's a lot cleaner now. Um, it's still a little bit messy, but the f- the nice thing is that, like, you never have to touch it once you get it working. Right, yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at the post now. This is th- this is fairly impressive. So, right, you, you're you handling a bunch of, um, yeah, arrays yeah, of so I call Yeah, encodables. I call them encodables, the objects that sort of need to be wrapped in, and it turned into NS coding sure, objects. Sure, yeah. So optionals, you got to handle special, um, because uh-huh. if it's if the optional doesn't come out correctly, you have to, the whole thing should be nil. Um, so you got to bail out of the initializer, sort of. Um, you got to handle optionals correctly. You got to handle arrays differently. Um, and then objects that are NS coding by default, so like numbers, kind of bridge to NS number and some kind of compiler magic goop. Um, and so you don't have to worry about those. So you got to do all this special, um, all this special stuff to make all these things kind of line up. Um, but we got it to work. Uh, and we sort of opted in our models to this one by one. Like we had a really rich model layer and we took one object and we said, okay, let's make this work with the, with the template. Then let's take a slightly more complicated and let's do another one and another one. And we added all these cases slowly 
built up this code and then we haven't touched the code in six months, which is a great feeling. That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, um, is all, uh, do you have the, these full templates on GitHub somewhere for others to examine or is the code presented in the, just in this blog post? I have a gist that I could post. Um, I, I think that would be cool too. Let's drop uh, that in the show notes. It would be, so the thing is like we wrote this for ourselves and it might not work for every use case. And it's also designed to work with some other machinery. So we have it, for example, we have a cache that's generic over some type. And then it's like we have a cache of locations. Um, and then that cache like will handle the bridging to these encodable objects and then back for you. So t- to you as the user, all you do is you create a cache of locations, which is just a struct. And then everything else transparently is hidden from you and, and just works automatically. So like okay. without that stuff, it's not as useful. You have to manually wrap this stuff in encodables um, uh, to make, like, make, make this stuff uh, work in a useful way with like NS Keyed Archiver and stuff. But um, it provides just the general pattern of you can do really complex things with, with sorcery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, the the two other interesting things I've learned recently since publishing this post, well, one's an interesting thing I learned, and one is something I have like a a, a, a long time goal. Okay. Um, the interesting thing is that there's another type of template that you can make with sorcery. So that you could do stem- stencil templates, which are like Liquid or like um, Jinja, all the different templating um, libraries, you know, Mustache, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another one called Swift Template, which is extremely crazy because the way that Swift template works is um, you can actually run any Swift code in the template. So anything in foundation, any of that stuff, you can just write it right into the template. Okay. So I need to look more into that and figure out how that stuff works. I think it's kind of in an early stage. I would love to talk to Shishtof about it too. Is this a, his invention? I'm not sure. I, I haven't been able to find out much about it. Um, and so I need yeah. to, I need to get more into it, but somebody basically tweeted at me and said, um, this thing, Swift template, you can basically use any Swift code and any foundation code. Um, huh. Yeah. That could be really cool. It could also be really problematic, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm just Googling right now, Swift template and I, I'm not, I'm not really finding anything is this uh so there's some stuff in the tests for sorcery for sorcery yeah right and then there's some other stuff in the code that works that way and and the only way i can think that it would work is you basically have to do a bunch of find and replaces to turn your template into a swift um file where all the things in between the executable meta code is like a string literal yeah and it all gets appended together and then execute that. I think that's the only way we could make it work. But I don't know. I really want to dig into this because it's like if this is true, this is crazy. Yeah, this is um yeah. Yeah. Pretty this nuts. is wild. Yeah. I'm looking at the uh I'm looking at this one uh equality.swift template that's included in the sorcery tests the the test for the sorcery repo. Yeah. And um yeah, I mean this that's cool. I don't know yeah. how it works. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll get a chance to dig more into that. Should be more powerful um, than what we're using currently, but also is if you do like a lot of logic in there, it could get really complicated. That being said, you know, this isn't a server where you have a controller or a model to do your logic for you and you don't want to do the logic in the view. So maybe it's actually okay. I don't know. 
but yeah, so that's pretty cool. So that's the one thing I learned about I want to dig more into. And then the other thing, which is the like long-time dream of mine, is basically um, I think that it should be possible to generate the entire model layer from using this technique. Basically, yeah. I want to have... So we have a model repo for Beacon. I think we should be able to have a protocol that represents the event, which has a sub-protocol for location and has a sub-protocol... Uh, not a sub-protocol, but like a reference is another protocol for users, all that stuff. And then just push a button and all the implementations for NS coding, for uh, Fluent, which is the Vapor uh, ORM, for JSON encoding to it, encoding from it, um, on the client side, on the surface side, all of that, you should just be able to instantly generate all that stuff. And then it should yeah. go into the right projects, and then you should be able to add extensions in those projects for the extra data that you want to add to it. Um, should be possible. And um, I don't know if I'll yeah. get a chance, I don't know when I'll get a chance to do it, but that's like my next thing. It's just like, you should not think about your model at all besides, um, oh, also the the code that um, sets up your migrations in Vapor so that you could just add a property and then it will automatically get added to your database next time you run that server, which would be also be really nice. Yeah, so you're thinking about just sort of a more declarative way to put together models for Swift that yeah. come with all these features. That's something that I, I know you've mentioned to me, but like in the past, it's 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 truly my white whale. I've been I've been chasing after this for a while. And you, I think I'm really getting close. close. Yeah, and then yeah. the other thing is like you might want to be able to make like you might want like let's say you have a co a concept of an event in your app like Beacon. You can also have like an event draft, which is exactly like an event, except all the properties are optional. And then you could like kind of assign them individually, and then like you could generate bridges from the event draft to the full event, or like the event draft goes to the server, whatever. But the point is, you could have all this stuff, and you could just generate it and never use it, but it would be there for when you did need it. Yeah, um, and that's a pattern I've done before. We have like a mutable version for messing with it on the client, and then once it goes up to the API and comes back, you get an immutable version. And like I shouldn't have to write and maintain two different objects for that. This should just be done for me. Um, it should generate classes, structs, whatever you want, just like done, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's my dream. I'm one step closer. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't see there that there's any reason why you couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, going back to Swift templates for a second, I found a commit in the, um, in the sorcery repo where somebody named, uh, Krunislav Zar. I Maybe believe. drop it in the show notes. We'll drop this in the show notes. Yeah. Um, it's a, the commit says Swift templates proof of concept, and this commit appears to introduce Swift the implementation of Swift templates to Sorcery. So I think this is uh this is Sorcery specific right now. Nice. And uh, I was listening to you, so I, and I wasn't really like trying to figure out exactly how this works, but it seems like you could dig into this to figure out how Swift templates actually work. Yeah, this is crazy. So this could also be really good if you're if you're writing really complex templates and you need like I was basically doing a lot of weird like okay let's say you have an array declaration so that's like open bracket and then a type name and then close bracket um, you want that type on the inside so I was doing a lot of like okay replace the first bracket and then replace the last bracket and then like make it lowercase it's like a bunch of crazy stuff like that and if I could just use actual foundation code like oof I could do awesome stuff so. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty dope. So yeah, that's my sorcery sort of most recent adventure. I just wanted to kind of touch on that. So one of the things that I forgot to mention in the discussion of that uh, skill that I'm working on is that just before we recorded this, 
I was busy trying to figure out how to use uh, the sort of await uh, async stuff from ES7. And uh, that looks really cool. It should really clean up the asynchronous code that I'm writing in, in Node. Uh, I don't quite have it working. I have to figure out how Babel works and how to like run things locally with Babel and then how to build it and get it all deploy, uh, deployed and happy on AWS Lambda. But um, I'm hopeful that I can, I, th I think I found something useful just before we recorded today. So I'm hopeful that I get that working. And that'll be really cool because this will be the first uh, time I've actually used async await um, sort of semantics in a production, like in, a, in any real application. Yeah, you know, for all the consternation about async await in the last couple of weeks, um, you're totally right that uh, neither of us have ever actually used it. Yeah, so... Yeah. Admittedly, it's it's you know it's in JavaScript, but I am looking forward to actually using that. Yeah, that'll be really cool. You have to report back when you uh, get a little more usage with it, and you can say how much you like it or don't like it. Yeah, I expect that in I don't know maybe in in another month or a few months, if I'm still uh, if I finish this little skill project, I imagine we'll do uh, some follow up on the podcast about the whole project. Nice, pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, so one other thing that we wanted to go over today is uh, I that I recently had an opportunity to help a friend with a Swift problem, and uh, he really stumbled into a pretty significant can of worms here. Uh, he's not an iOS developer, although he's a pretty you know a sharp developer in general. Um, and he was he's used Objective C before and wanted to do a command line program uh, that was written using Swift. And he had a Swift library from Realm that he needed to depend on. Uh, he's doing some work with like comma separated values among other things. Um, so he he wants to build a command line tool. And he uh, had started a command line application project in Xcode, and he had started to use CocoaPods to integrate this uh, library into it. And he he emailed me because, uh, as you might expect, when he tried to run the application, he got a dynamic linker error. It couldn't find uh, this, I think, the Swift runtime. And when I downloaded his project and tried to compile it, sure enough, it couldn't find uh, one of the dependencies that he was trying to pull in via CocoaPods. So the issue here, and we can throw, uh, I'll throw a bunch of the same links that I sent him into show notes. Uh, the issue, of course, is that CocoaPods wants to compile all your libraries and frameworks and put them on the application bundle. Xcode also wants to do that, right, with the Swift library. Um, Right, the Swift runtime uh, command line program is just a binary; it doesn't have a bundle. <laughs> so, right, it's uh, and this will be kind of familiar to a lot of people who tried to write Swift applications. It's you, it's difficult to distribute a like binary Swift application, especially with third-party libraries. Um, and so, I sent him a little bit of reading about this problem about the problem and made two suggestions. Uh, the second one was uh, basically just a bunch of useful looking links on Stack Overflow since I've never actually fixed this problem for myself. I haven't written a <laughs> command line application in Swift. Um, I've just read about it. Uh, but 
I sent him some useful links or hopefully useful links about how to change the path that the dynamic linker looks for libraries at runtime. So maybe if he like, I, this seems like it's a tool internally for his lab. So assuming he can control the, like how this is distributed and installed, maybe you could just link the, or uh, just tell the binary to look for these libraries in its directory and ship the binary plus all the dynamic libraries that it requires. Right. And, that could work. My other suggestion was uh, that Swift Package Manager uh, will now let you like make a command line application in Swift and ship it and have libraries and stuff in it. And I don't totally understand how that all works from a like linking point of view. I guess maybe it actually statically links all these libraries in because otherwise, how could you distribute just a binary? Um, but I sent him some links about Swift Package Manager, uh, since the command line apps are the only thing that Swift Package Manager works for, um, and suggested that you know maybe you know you you just started this project. Why don't you try starting over with, with Swift Package Manager instead of CocoaPods in Xcode, and try to integrate these libraries and build it and see if it actually runs this way. Um, and that was a couple days ago, and I haven't heard a report back from him yet, but he's going to experiment with SPM and report back to me how it goes. And I'm super excited to hear back from him because this is something that like I've read about. I like once started trying to write a Swift command line program and quickly gave up <laughs> because I didn't want to deal with all this. Uh, but he like is trying to use a Swift framework from Realm, so right. he, he doesn't really have a choice here. And I think that the Swift Package Manager stuff for command line programs especially has come a long way since I tried, which was, I mean, two years ago at this point, probably. Yeah. So I think, uh, I don't know, do you think that was the right advice? I do think that was the right advice. Is this software going to run on Linux computers or Mac computers? Mm, that's a good question. I think, you know, I'm not totally sure. Okay. So if he's trying to use a package from Realm... Um, uh, uh, Swift lacks the um, runtime features that Objective-C does, which is why uh, the Realm stuff, I think, is still written in Objective-C, but there's just Swift bindings to it. So, um... I mean, this wasn't... This was... I'll try to dig up what it was. This was like some Realm library for dealing with... Uh, here, what, will you talk? I'll try to find a library. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if, if it's designed for Linux, that library may not even work because if he's using it for persistence or something, it like won't be able to know what properties he has because Swift has no reflection capabilities. Um, that being said, uh, I hope it does work. I think SPM is the right answer. It's what we use for server side Swift. It works pretty well for us. Okay, cool. That's that's good to know. Yeah, it, it's pretty good now. Um, I don't use it for too many packages because, you know, I'm so crazy about not invented here. Um, but uh, it's generally working well for us. The other thing I would add is that, like, if you want to write... If, do you think he would write tests? Is he a software engineer that would want to do that kind of thing? Or is he more of, like, Swift is going to solve my problem? Uh, I'm not totally sure. Uh, he's... I, I'm not totally sure. I don't. I think that the idea here is that this is a like internal tool for them to use on their development machines, and so gotcha. I think it's probably OS ten, although or Mac OS. Although I will uh, email him after the show to convince or to uh, confirm that. Right, right. Um, and we'll throw a link to the repository that he's trying to use in the show notes. This is Realm Converter, an open source framework to make it easier to get data in and out of Realm. 
Uh, it has been built in Swift, but can also be easily utilized in Objective-C programs. Interesting. It may rely, using Swift's objective uh, yeah, it may rely on the um, Objective-C runtime, which doesn't exist on Linux, but if it doesn't, then I think it will work. Yeah. Um, or he could just run it on the Mac. Um, yeah. yeah. The other thing I want to add is, um, so when you compile a binary um, using Swift Package Manager and using just like Swift build or whatever, uh, the problem is that you create a binary you can't run tests against it because anything that you would run tests against, you have to hit that like public API of the, of the application binary. Mm-hmm. And so to actually run tests, what you have to do is you have to make a second module that has all of the code that you want to test in it and then run XC test against, or like, you know, Xcode, sorry, Swift test against that module. And you know, import you, and then you can import that as testable because um, it can basically rewrite all your internal bindings to public bindings and then run code against it. But uh-huh. then, yes, yeah, so you can't test the actual thing that compiles into your exec- executable. You have to import the code that you're testing into that into the module that is actually going to be compiled into the executable, and then build that. And so your public declarations have to be right, like. Testing in Linux is weird right now. Yeah. Uh, is, yeah. I think the good news is that um, most of the, or, or the Swift Package Manager tutorials that I sent him do follow that pattern of putting your code in a library so that you can test it. Um, so assuming he follows one of those, uh, or he'll he'll figure that out. Um, yeah. And, and he should end up with something that's a decent architecture. Uh, if not, I mean, I get the feeling he's writing an internal tool to do some stuff with CSVs, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think he'll be okay, and you can always, like, it, I don't think it's going to be a big program that it would be hard to, like, refactor out later. Right, right. Yeah, I ended up doing that for the Beacon app uh, maybe, like, a week or two in, because I was like, I really want to write tests for this one component, but because um, it had a bunch of education that I wanted to test, and... Yeah. Uh, it ended up being that, like, I I spent a while trying to figure out, like, how does this actually work? And you have to pull the code out into a separate module, and that's how okay. it works. Yeah. I'll, when I, I'll email him again after this, and I'll mention that to him, too. Yeah, sweet. Uh, so he's aware. I'm always in favor of writing tests, even for stupid, small, internal things. Uh, although, who, who knows if it's worth his time? We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Well, this was fun. Yeah, this has been uh, hopefully an interesting episode. Uh, we we didn't get to the fourth topic on our list, which is uh, Chris's writing Python and um, had some observations about coming to Python from Swift. Uh, but we'll talk about those another time. Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, as always, Chris, it was great to talk to you and thanks to all the Patreon people. Uh, as we said, uh, thank you so much to all of you for your support. Uh, you keep the podcast sponsor free and pay for our production costs and uh, now microphones, so we'll sound even better. Sarush, it's always nice to talk to you, and uh, talk to you next week. Sounds good. Talk later, Chris.